Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 39. Psalm chapter 39. I hope the songs we've been able to sing together and the truth that we've been uh, declaring to one another have been an encouragement to your heart this morning. Psalm chapter 39. As a Christian, have you ever felt the hot fire of exasperation grow in you as you considered or experienced firsthand the painful realities of life in a sin-cursed world? Have you ever wondered what you're supposed to do when these types of questions about God and faith are boiling around inside of you, when your heart is in this internal turmoil? Should you cast them aside? Should you pretend that they don't exist? Should you just try to silence them? Or should you directly engage them? And if so, what does that even look like? Psalm 39 helps Christians understand how to respond to the bewilderment we might feel in our relationship with God. Psalm 39 is going to teach us more about God and ourselves. And after all, we can really only understand ourselves after we've learned truth about God. And I believe, as Jesus said in John 8, that the truth is what will set us free. And Psalm 39 is full of that, that, uh, that truth that can set us free. Psalm 39, in its essence, is basically a meditation on the brevity of life. I think that was pretty obvious as it was read for us this morning. It's a meditation on the brevity of life. So thinking about the brevity of life, listen to these stats. The lifespan of a mayfly is 24 hours. Drone ants live about three weeks. Uh, it's said that the common horsefly lives about four weeks, although flies in my home seem to live forever. And the dragonfly supposedly has a lifespan of four months. What about humans? Well, the CDC, the latest data they have there, said that the life expectancy in the U.S. is 78.6 years. And the leading causes of death are heart disease, cancer, and unintentional injuries from accidents. Psalm 39 is a meditation on the brevity of life, but this meditation is not a random one. It's not just the wanderings of an idle mind or a lazy afternoon daydream and David was just kind of idly sitting there and he just kind of got, he saw, you know, a, a mayfly die and he thought, man, life is short and he started to write about it. That's not what happened. This meditation on the brevity of life flows from the pen of David out of deep angst and bewilderment. And so what I want to do is take some time here in the beginning of the sermon, kind of as a longer introduction, just to establish what is happening in the circumstances of why I believe David writes this meditation on the brevity of life and how it flows out of this deep angst and bewilderment that he feels. Because I think this understanding is going to be crucial for us to more deeply appreciate the truth that God has for us in Psalm 39. So what's going on here? Why is David writing this meditation about the brevity of life? Well, look at the first three verses. In verse 1, David is writing about how he has to be so careful and guarded about how he speaks so that he doesn't sin. He's concerned about that. Have you ever had things in life happen like that to you, where something happened and your tendency is, man, I better be quiet, otherwise I'm going to say something I regret. This is like what David is feeling. There's so much turmoil and angst boiling around inside of him. This is his experience. It's so bad for him, it's as if he needs the help of a muzzle. See, in verse 1, he wants this help because he's concerned about speaking out and saying something he shouldn't. And it's likely that he has this concern because in uh, the end of verse 1, it says, so long as the wicked are in my presence, it seems that he doesn't want to cause unbelievers or non-Christians to hear him speak out of his angst and turmoil and in so doing, 
for an unbeliever to have doubt or have confusion cast upon God or the Christian faith. In verses 2 and 3, this angst just keeps boiling inside of him and keeps intensifying. He's trying to stay silent, but as he stays silent, his distress keeps growing. And so eventually, after giving some more thought, his heart is burning hot inside of him. Verse 3, David has to speak out. And you're probably eager to know what he says. But the question before, before we look at what he says is why is David so full of bewilderment and angst? What is this turmoil churning around inside of him? I believe the answer to that question is found by understanding how Psalm 39 flows out of the psalms that precede it. Do you remember Psalm 38 from last week? Well, Psalm 38 are, and 39 are distinct yet interconnected psalms, I believe. In Psalm 38 from last week, David was confessing his sinfulness. You see that in verse 18. And he writes about the heavy and destructive effects of sin in his life. Uh, Verse 3 and on throughout the rest of the psalm, David describes the relational and spiritual and physical effects that sin is wreaking havoc in his life. And after he confesses his sin, he calls out to the Lord, God is the only one who can rescue him. That's there at the end of chapter 38. But then in Psalm 39, some of the same themes that we read about in Psalm 38 reappear. Psalm 39, verses 1 and 2, talk about how he's trying to keep silent. We'll look back at Psalm 38 in verse 11. He writes that he says, um, I'm sorry, did I have the wrong verse there? He writes about, I do have the wrong verse. He writes about how he's trying to to be silent. And uh, in um, in verse 14, I've become a man who does not hear, in whose mouth there are no rebukes. Verse 13, I'm a deaf man, I do not hear. He's mute, he's trying to keep the silence. In Psalm 39 and verse 10, uh, he talks about, he asks God to remove your stroke from me. And down in chapter 38, he describes what God has done in his life uh, as a plague. In chapter 39, he describes God as the one who is disciplining him. Verses 9 through 11. And back in Psalm chapter 38, he describes that it's God who is the one who is doing this to him. So there's these similarities between Psalm 38 and Psalm 39, which makes me believe that Psalm 39 continues to flow out of his experience from Psalm 38. In Psalm 39, what seems to be happening is that David is perplexed by the seeming heavy-handedness of God's rebuke in his life. It seems that David is full of turmoil and angst. He's bewildered at the seeming heavy-handedness of God's rebuke in his life. Look at verse 9 of Psalm 39. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Notice all the yous in this section. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. And here's the summary statement, which is the theme of Psalm 39, this brevity of life. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. And then you have that word selah, which we think means pause and consider this. Meditate on that truth. David is putting the responsibility for his suffering squarely on God. And his summary statement there at the end of that section reminds us that he just keeps coming back to this theme of life is short. So I think that David is in turmoil over the stroke of God in his life. And this turmoil is because is why he's being so cautious and restrained in the opening lines of that psalm about not wanting to speak out and speak in a sinful way about how he feels like God is treating him with such heavy-handed rebuke. And so he writes about the medit- a meditation on the brevity of life. This meditation flows out of the idea of the withering effect of God's discipline in his life 
makes him freshly realize the brevity of life. In other words, the hardship or the sickness, right? It might be sickness because Psalm 38 verses 5 and on describe what sound like terms to describe somebody in dreadful sickness. This stroke or this plague from God, David, it's giving David a deeper awareness of the breath-like and fleeting reality of human life. And so, really, Psalm 39 is a humble confession of a creature before an almighty God, the uncreated one. David isn't the only one that we read about in the scriptures who wrestled with God like this, bewildered by what seemed like God's heavy-handed rebuke. Job wrestled with these things also. I don't know if you're familiar with the Old Testament character Job. If you're not, I'm going to quickly summarize. But Job is described in the scriptures, God describes him with these words. He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And yet God gives Satan permission to cause Job catastrophic suffering in almost every way imaginable. In the span of one day, he loses his wealth, he loses his livelihood, and his children were killed, and his property is destroyed. And then if, if, as if that's not enough, then his health is taken. And as a result, his good name and his reputation are tarnished. He's now being avoided by most people who used to call him friends. He's shunned. He's an outcast in society. And he doesn't understand why all of these horrific things are happening to him. And much of the book contains the arguments that Job is having about the cause and the reason on why he's going through this suffering. And listen to what Job says to God in chapter 7. He says, I will not restrain my mouth, which... It's kind of similar to what David writes in Psalm 39, except where David is saying, I'm going to be silent. Job is saying, I'm not going to be silent. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you, God, set a guard over me? When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. And by bones means they're my health. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. Do you hear the bewilderment? Job continues, What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him and visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Do you hear the bewilderment and angst there in Job, which is very similar to what I believe David is going through in Psalm 39. But Job says it with such matter-of-fact bluntness. It's as if he's saying, God, so if I sin, how does that really affect you? You're, You're the creator. You're God. What is me, a mere creature? How do I bother you at all? It'd be like us worrying about an ant that doesn't go about its duties for the day. How many of us are troubled by that? Job wrestled with the same stroke heavy-handedness that he felt of God being troubled. How could he be a burden to the eternal creator? So I think in Psalm 39, David in his own way is wrestling with these similar kinds of bewilderment that Job had before him. So what are we supposed to do with all this? It's helpful because Psalm 39 instructs us how we are to work through these kind of bewildering experiences with God. David doesn't have the answers to all the enigmas of life. Neither did Job. But David does give us truth that is sufficient to carry him and us through these kinds of troubled waters. And so this is where the main idea of the psalm shines. This meditation on the brevity of life is not random. It flows out of this fresh awareness of his creatureliness before an almighty creator God. 
And so what are we supposed to do when we feel that God is treating us heavy-handed? We're bewildered by the seeming treatment that he gives us. Number one, remember the brevity of life. How are we to work through these things? Remember the brevity of life. I suppose there's numerous ways we could respond to these experiences in life, but maybe we could boil them down to two general categories. One is that of humility, and one is that of pride. One is thinking that we know better than God, and we understand everything as God, and we can therefore object and refute God and his almighty eternal wisdom. Or we can remember we are the created beings under the rule and reign of a sovereign good creator. David, right, he finally gives an outburst from his heart in verse 4. And what is, he, what is this outburst? Well, it's the prayer of humility. O Lord, verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. He's not demanding of God to exonerate God. Prove to me why it's okay for you to treat me like this. Prove to me why it's okay for this to happen to me, God. That's not the response of David. As he's wrestling with these enigmas and the bewilderment of how he sees God's treatment in his life, what he does is he embraces freshly that he is the created one. He is the one of very short life. David doesn't understand all the ways of God or all the purposes of God. He doesn't understand why God would allow such harsh things to happen to him. But what he does know with fresh awareness is how fleeting and short life is. Life is a gift from God. We're not entitled of anything from God. We're not deserving of anything from God other than condemnation for our sin. So what I think what David is saying in verse 4 is, in other words, of saying, God, am I going to die? Maybe the illness that might be talked about in Psalm 38 is so dreadful, he thinks that he may not make it through this sickness. Oh, Lord, make me know my end. He's not asking, Lord, help me know all what's happening in my life. God isn't like a, like a, uh, um, uh, a what do they call the people that can tell the future? I'm seeking like psychologists, but I know that's not right. But you know what I'm talking about? The word escapes me. Uh, he's not talking about like God being like that, a soothsayer, being able to, to predict the future. He wants to know, God, how long do I have to live because my life is so short? The word hand breath that he uses is a term that describes the smallest common form of measurement in David's day. It's a term that is also used in the book of Ecclesiastes over and over and over again to describe life as vanity. So what I believe David is coming to this meditation on the brevity of life is because he freshly appreciates how short life is, how puny and insubstantial we are. But here's the key. When contrasted with God's eternal, awesome, and everlasting purposes in existence. We might think our life is short, but a mayfly thinks our life is pretty long. We might think our life is inconsequential, but a dragonfly might... And I know a dragonfly can't think, but for the sake of illustration, you get the idea... I believe what's happening here is David runs to this realization of the brevity of his life as he considers an almighty, eternal God. And so his only objection to God is simply humble, in some ways, reverence that's boiling out of angst. God, help me understand how fleeting I am, how wispy I am when I stand before the realization of your awesome, eternal, all-wise existence. You see verse 5, my lifetime is as what? Nothing, how? Before you. That's the comparison that David is drawing on. It's not that human life has no value, no, but as he considers the eternal purposes of God, these enigmas that he doesn't understand, David is drawn to this realization, how fleeting my life is. 
Look at verse 6. Not only is life short, but so often what we do in our short life often doesn't really matter. That's how David feels. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, really insubstantial. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. If you want to read more about that, read through the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll be returning to those themes regularly. And so maybe you're rethinking your decision to come gather with your church family today, right? You come on a, on a Sunday looking for an encouraging word, an uplifting you know, message, and here we are looking at Psalm 39 about the angst and bewilderment of God's treatment of us and how short life is. But wait, this is what we need to hear. Psalm 39 reminds us of the realities that we so often try to suppress or forget. But the best way to live today is with the knowledge that we might die tomorrow. The best way to live today is with the knowledge that we are accountable to an almighty creator. God doesn't owe us anything, right? We're not entitled to a certain kind of life or a length of life from God. Life in its, in its essence is a gift from God, the scriptures teach. And so accepting the reality of how short life is helps us make better decisions today. There's a lot of similarities between the tone and message of Psalm 39 with Ecclesiastes. Here's one example uh, that might pique your interest to look into these things a little bit more. But in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, it says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. We find wisdom when we consider our mortality. What we need most isn't more entertainment or pleasure or distractions. What we need most is a fresh vision, a fresh awareness of the reality of how short life is. Which is why the psalmist says, O Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. No one on their deathbed ever wished they had watched more Netflix. No one on their deathbed ever wished they had stayed at the office longer or sent more emails. No one on their deathbed, you can fill in the blank. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. So in Psalm 39, David is talking about where or in what to find meaning in life. What gives your life meaning? He's thinking about the brevity of life, how short it is. What gives your life meaning? Pleasure? What happens when your experience of that pleasure is robbed from you? Is the ultimate meaning in your life based or anchored in something in this wispy life that David describes? If it is, then you should take note and beware because your life might soon lose its meaning and purpose. But if your meaning and purpose in life is anchored in something that is beyond this life, something that is that where even death cannot touch it, then your purpose in life cannot be destroyed. So then Psalm 39 shows us where we must find our meaning in life. This leads us to really the the second main idea we talked about one remember the brevity of life number two so what are we going to do with this hope in the lord two simple points remember the brevity of life number two hope in the lord i believe these are counterweights of balanced theology for christian living remember the brevity of life but you could take that to such an extreme that you're no no good here on earth you just become a worry ward right so we remember the brevity of life while simultaneously hoping in the Lord. These go together. See verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. This is why I believe Psalm 39 is a, is a meditation on the brevity of life that flows into this, this question about in what do we find meaning in life? This term of Lord and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? What, is, what are the hopes and the dreams 
and the desires of his heart, where are they located and what are they fixed on? It's as if he's realizing freshly, life is so short and all the things I might hold dearest to me in this life can be taken from me through death. So then what does he wait for? He finds that God is the only place where his soul can be anchored most securely. What gives our short life its deepest and most enduring meaning is hope in God. Because hope in God is a hope that will always carry through. It will always fulfill its purposes. It will never fall short, ultimately. There may be times where we would doubt that. Many times we might doubt that. But yet the the, the universal message of the New Testament Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, is that hope in God does not fail you. And so with hope in God, we have the promise that He will never forsake us. That He is always working for our good. When we hope in God, we remember that He will always relate to us in steadfast love because of Jesus Christ. And David gives us a reason for why he hopes in God in the next verse. You see in verse 8, he says, Deliver me from all my transgressions. So maybe we could think of it this way. Christians should hope in the Lord because God is the only one who can deliver us from our sin. Christians hope in the Lord because God is the only one who can deliver us from our sin. Verse 8, deliver me from my transgressions. This is the central message of Christianity. The central message of Christianity is not a a code of ethics or lifestyle choices. The central message of Christianity is this, that God, a holy God, has made it possible for sinners to enjoy Him in relationship forever through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as Savior. It talk, the central message of Christianity is this transformation of life, a, a total reorientation, a dramatic transformation of the affections of the heart to be cast aside from sin, this is repentance, confession, and turn towards embracing God in love through Jesus Christ. This is where David runs. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? When it seems like everything that you might hold dear in life can be taken from you in death, where do you turn? David turns to hope in the Lord. Why? Because David understands that hope in God is what delivers him from the worst robbery of all, sin that destroys relationship with God. So this is where David turns. What's your strategy to take care of your sin? I'm not asking what's your strategy to retire wealthy or what's your strategy to do some great career accomplishment or raise amazing kids or whatever else. None of that will matter if you die in the condemnation of your sin. What is your strategy to be delivered from your sin? And let me stack that against the context of Psalm 39. Life is short. And so as we read Psalm 39, we should feel this urgency. And it's not like we've got a lot of time to figure all this out. I mean, it might look like you have a lot of time compared to the Mayfly, right? But in reality, your life is a wisp. It's a vapor. What's your strategy to take care of your guilt of sin before a holy God? Well, Christians know what the strategy is. Our strategy is really... Not a strategy at all other than accepting what God has done for us through Jesus. Christians aren't people who work to please God so that we can have favor with God and acceptance with Him. Christians are people who abandon all efforts of self-salvation and entirely embrace hope in the salvation that God provides through Jesus Christ. That's David in Psalm 39, verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Jesus 
It tells us this, Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, that in Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace. So friends, as you consider the brevity of life, as you consider the inner turmoil and angst that you might even feel about how it seems that God is treating you, remember Psalm 39 in this way. Oh, and now, O oh Lord, what do I wait? My hope is in you. Do you have a hope in God like this? A hope in God that is anchored in the unchanging nature of his redeeming, steadfast, covenant-keeping love. A fierce love that other writers in the scripture have described in fantastic language because it's as if the English language can't quite describe this kind of love. I mean, they use words like neither height nor depth. Nor, they go on and on trying to use these superlative descriptions about God's love. That is what Christians hope in. In what is your hope anchored? As you consider a short life, in what is your hope anchored? The meaning of life is only discovered when we hope in God through the saving grace of Jesus. And Christians hope in God also because God is the sovereign ruler of life. This, I think, is the, the second main reason that we see in Psalm 39 of David's hope in God. And it's kind of, it's not said explicitly as much as it's implicitly in there. Because through the rest of the psalm, David is appealing to God, praying to God, crying out to God, casting his hope on God. Christians hope in God because God is the sovereign ruler of life. Look at verse 9. He says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. David is choosing to be silent because he knows it is God's hand at work in his life and God is removing obstacles of sin that would prevent his hope and enjoyment of God. And this takes us back to Job. Remember Job in Job chapter 7? I mean, he was writing some hard, blunt things. But at the end of this account, near the end, in Job chapter 40, God finally responds to Job. And listen to what the Lord says to Job in Job chapter 40. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? I want to stop here. Maybe I've said this before, but imagine if you had something terrible going on in your life and you requested some counseling with Pastor Steve. Not me, of course. I wouldn't do this. And he listens to you tear all these heartbreaks and he says this to you. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? See, that sounds like terrible counseling. This is the words of God to Job, a man who went through catastrophic suffering. And we object to this. And I'm not saying this is, this is the way pastors at Highlands Baptist would treat you in, in, in a brokenhearted situation. Please, I hope that's, that's very clear, right? But we forget who God is. And friends, one of the blessings of coming together week after week on a Sunday morning gathering with other Christians who follow Jesus is we're helping each other through our singing, through our praying, through the reading of the scripture, through sitting together under, the, under submission to the God's word taught. God is the one, the almighty, worthy, ever worthy, majestic, holy God. So God continues, who argues with God? Let him answer it. Here's how Job answers. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. Sounds similar to Psalm 39. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Sounds like Psalm 39. I'll be mute. I'll be quiet. I'm going to be silent. So what we need most in life is David's perspective. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Maybe you read verse 11 and you're thinking, I don't like a God like this. I mean, have you read it? When, a, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. 
And here he returns to the theme. Surely, all mankind is a mere breath. Well, what David is saying here is basically, as what the moth does to, to, uh, to a wool garment is, God, what you seem to be doing to me. Does that mean that God is out to get us? Does that mean that God is finds some twisted satisfaction in causing us heartache and misery? No. Psalm 39 invites us, like David, to hope in God. Hope in God during our short lifespan because we can hope in God who gave himself for us in Jesus. When we have more scriptures to draw on than David did, we can go to passages like Hebrews chapter 12 where we are assured that God disciplines us for our good so that we might share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I don't know what your experience is this morning in your Christian life. Maybe you are like David or like Job, just bewildered and wondering at God's treatment of you, circumstances that have fallen in, in your life, the way things are going, and you feel this turmoil and bewilderment in your soul. What should our response be? Keep crying out to the Lord. Remember the brevity of life. And remember that God has made a way for you to know him and enjoy him forever. Set your your hope and anchor your confidence in him. Psalm 39, verse 7. Verses 12 and 13, David makes a final plea to the Lord in conclusion. Because God is David's hope, David keeps crying out to God. And that's the example that we should follow. Keep crying out to the Lord. Instead of turning away from God in arrogance and prideful cynicism, set your hope in him, being fully assured that he's always working for your good and he's demonstrated his love in the greatest way possible by giving you Jesus as your sin substitute. Notice in verse 12, he describes himself as a sojourner like his father's. I think this ties in again with this idea on the brevity of life. This is a reference to the faithful um, patriarchs of the faith that came before him. It harkens back to those that we read in the Old Testament, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These individuals that God gave a covenant promise of the blessing to come. And David is identifying with these characters of the faith from ages past who wandered around. It's described in Hebrews 11 as the people who, they didn't receive the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And David feels just like those fathers of the faith before him. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city I think one of the benefits of Psalm 39 is as it causes us to think about the brevity of life, it reminds us that this is not our final destination. It doesn't matter how great your home is or how customized it is or upgraded it is or how perfect the location is or how many memories you have in that home. The reality is is we, we all long for the home that will never be taken from us through old age or decline or death or fire or destruction. We always long for that. Why? Oh, Lord, teach us. Teach us to know what is the measure of our days. I'm going to invite the music team to come forward. And as they come, let's consider this last verse, verse 13. It's a bit of a puzzler, maybe. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Often we see the scriptures saying, God, shine your face on me. And yet here we have the psalmist writing, God, look away from me that I may smile again. This may not sound hopeful to you, but I assure you it is. 
David knows that unless the Lord extends mercy and forgiveness, he's finished. David is admitting here that, it is, that God is the source of joy for him and he is to be recipient. He needs to be a recipient of God's merciful kindness. And so David is admitting here, God is the one that holds the power of joy and pain. God is the one that holds the power of both life and death. And so like David, the only one that we can trust with the bewilderment of our short life, with the enigmas of life, is the eternal uncreated God. He alone is the one that can deliver us from all of our transgressions. So a summary then, what can you walk away with from Psalm 39, verse 7? I want it to be these words. Verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. What do you wait? And in who do you hope? Let's pray.